Miracy. The beauty of going beyond capitalism is really that it hasn't been born yet. You know, so often when we say, well, like anti-capitalism, well, oh, you, you mustn't like business or you mustn't like money, but they're different things. They're not the same thing as capitalism. Hello, I'm Katie Valentine, and you're listening to Soul Savvy Business. I am a soul-minded spiritual entrepreneur, Christian minister, and a New Testament scholar, but don't let that scare you. I support all paths to the divine, and I use tools such as chakras, dreams, and intuition to get there. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of business and spirituality. What do I mean by that? Too often, we separate our business selves from our spiritual selves. But in doing that, we don't leverage the full potential of either one. This series aims to help you fall in love with your own soul so that you can live your most fulfilling and successful life. On today's episode, I'll be talking with an activist, writer, and coach who is passionate about helping others bring more love and harmony into the world. But first, In every episode, I offer a tip around abundance and your spiritual journey. Today's tip is about the external motivation we all need sometimes to get in our businesses and create abundance for your business and for the world. And I'm talking about blinging out your clothes, jewelry, hair, and whatever else you need to get snazzy. Please note, this is not a dress for success tip. It's about bringing your personal joy to what you do every day and serving others especially for those of us who work primarily from home. It is super easy for me to stay in my yoga pants all day long, and some days I do. But when I need to get motivated and pay attention to abundance and serve others, I will bling out, pull out the jewelry, shoes with actual laces, and some kind of shirt that signifies abundance to my brain. All of these little things can add up, and they tell the universe that you're serious about your impact, and the universe will respond. Please note, this is not about how much anything costs. It's about how it makes you feel. Bonus points if you know what you're putting on is ethically sourced, fair trade, or reused. Abundance loves the circle of life, and you will find your vibration raised and abundance flowing more easily when you just blink out. My guest today is Laura Hartley. Laura is the founder of Public Love Enterprises and Love Ed, a school that is committed to helping changemakers dismantle current systems that inhibit our thriving. Welcome to the show, Laura. Ah, thank you so much, Katie. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited too. And I'm curious, did anything resonate with you in the tip on abundance about bling and just blinging out? Oh, yes. I mean, as somebody else who like also works from home a lot, you know, I'm I'm frequently found in like sweats, especially from like the waist down. But, you know, I think abundance is this sense of joy and abundance is this sense, you know, it's a precursor to sharing, to collaboration, to imagination. And, you know, the more that we can find ways to foster that sense of feeling good, of feeling like I'm enough, feeling satiated, feeling joyful. And I think that's a beautiful thing that you know, really begets more beautiful possibilities. When we're stuck in the scarcity or the not good enough, that's kind of what leads to other conditions that we're not wanting to experience. So yeah, let's dress it up. 
What's your favorite thing to put on? You know, I have a pair of earrings and I have a bracelet that a very good friend of mine gave me for a birthday a few years ago. So they're very meaningful and they're beautiful. So I think it's those small pieces that even if I'm still just wearing like a t-shirt and some jeans that, I don't know, make me feel a little bit nicer. Yeah, I'll often walk around in very casual clothing, but with some nicer jewelry on. And I think, why wait till New Year's Eve to wear this? Why not just wear it all the time and love it? Exactly. You know, we have such a a mindset sometimes of saving things for the right occasion or, you know, for this magical day, you know, when it will be just right, save it for the good times. But we never know when that will be. And we really should embrace everything beautiful that we have now in our everyday lives. I love it. Well, Laura, I know you describe yourself as spiritual and not religious. And I would love to know how you describe what you consider the divine. What words or word do you use for that? Oh, that's a good question. You know, growing up, I used the word universe a lot. You know, that was the term that my mother used. You know, my mother was raised Catholic and and left the church before I was born. So there were influences of Catholicism to the spirituality that I was given, but she definitely believed more in an energetic force and she used the term the universe. And I've kind of adopted that. Now I'm older, I tend to use the word God a little bit more. I've kind of made my, my peace with that term. You know, it wasn't always a safe term that I felt like using but I tend to see them interchangeably now. God, the universe, whatever force is out there. What changed for you that enabled you to use the word God? Yeah, you know, I became more comfortable using the word God after some really personal transformation experiences that I had a few years ago. I had this sense of grief and of compassion and forgiveness very much directed towards myself. And, you know, in that time, I felt something larger than me. But that's something larger than me. I wasn't as comfortable using the word universe, which sometimes feels really impersonal. It feels really, it's expansive and it's big and it's beautiful. But it's also sometimes in those small, quiet moments when you're connecting with something else, the word God felt more familiar or more personal, more intimate as something that I could actually connect with. Did you feel like there was more of a personality behind the word God? I think in a sense, yes. You know, it's certainly not something that maybe I intellectually differentiate, but on that kind of personal, deeper level, the emotional level, yeah, it felt more like a a presence or a being that I could relate to as opposed to, you know, this large kind of mind-blowing force that, you know, we can't fully comprehend, which is sometimes what I attach with the word universe. So in a sense, although I see them as the same thing, they kind of have two different roles in shaping how I speak about the divine or about God or the universe. Yeah. And you mentioned just a little bit about your upbringing and that your mom had been Catholic and she left that before you were born. But can you tell us just a little bit about your religious or your spiritual upbringing and what that was like for you? Spirituality was an important part of my household growing up. You know, my mother, as I said, had left the Catholic Church, but she hadn't you know, lost her belief in the divine or in the universe. She still believed in something greater than herself, and she very much instilled that belief and that connection into me. So she ran a life coach training school, and so she was very much fascinated with personal development, with these kind of new age spiritual teachings. And some of my earliest memories are sitting in a car and listening to Wayne Dyer or Neil Donald Walsh or... She had books by Florence Scovel Shin and these incredible teachers that really taught us to foster the inner world. And 
You know, this was a real important point for me because I think it planted the seed for me that I knew that we had an inner world, that it was something that we could cultivate, that it was something where we could generate our own experiences, that we could look within for answers. And then really that seed only germinated after I had my darker experiences as a teenager and in my early 20s with depression, with anxiety, with burnout, with these really heavy emotions that I was going through that turned me again to, well, how do I look within? How do I look at my relationship to something larger than myself? And part of my healing from those times was actually going back to those roots, those spiritual roots that I had when I was young at meditation, at prayer, at going out into nature and looking for something still and something beautiful. And it was those experiences that again helped me turn my life and what is important to me, what is of value to me into this idea of service and how am I going to serve others. So even though it wasn't a religious household by any means, you know, there was no formal church, there was no formal practice. You know, I definitely grew up seeing meditation, seeing prayer, seeing this idea that we can cultivate something within ourselves to create a more beautiful life and world. What does your spiritual practice look like now? I have individual practices. Meditation and prayer are big ones. You know, I think my prayer is very informal, but it's still there. Yeah, I think prayer is this beautiful mix of kind of listening and speaking and, and finding that balance between the two. And meditation is really just about a practice to cultivate stillness so that I can listen, so that I can tap in with my body, you know, tap in with the ground, tap in with what is true and what is real and what is really happening in my experiences. But I also think, and this is a, you know, perhaps a slightly different one. I also consider travel to be one of my spiritual practices. Travel has this beautiful way of reminding me that there's more than one way to be human, that there are infinite possibilities in this world. It cultivates that experience of awe and wonder which, you know, if nothing else is the experience of God, surely it is that. And it reminds me that there is beauty in the world and that I can always seek it out. So that is definitely a foundational one for me. (laughs) Is there one place that stands out in particular to you right now? There's two places, I think. You know, the first is Peru. It's a beautiful country. And I remember just having this incredible heart-opening experience up near Lake Titicaca. And I can't quite put it into words what it was, except that that sense of stillness and that sense of presence came over me. And, you know, it's in those moments that I was able to kind of sink in, you know, and, and feel like, okay, what is, what is here? What needs to be released? What is calling to be brought forth? You know, and out of that comes that sense of presence and that sense of wonder. And the second place was Bhutan, which is a beautiful, tiny Himalayan country nestled between India and China. And I went there because they're famous for their development philosophy of gross national happiness to learn about it. And somewhere in their mountains, I just remember falling in love with the world again, you know, at the magic of being alive. And that for me is a very spiritual experience. I read a novel once set in Bhutan, and I think it had to do with Shangri-La. And so it's been in the back of my mind as a bucket list place. So I think you just moved it closer to the front. So thank you for that and for sharing those. Definitely. You need to go. It's incredible. I'll consider it a done deal. It's on the list now officially. So that's wonderful. Have your spiritual beliefs or experiences ever influenced the way you think about money and abundance? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, something that I heard my mom challenging a lot when I was young was definitely this idea that you shouldn't earn money if you're doing spiritual work. You know, such a common one. 
or if you're doing work that's of service in the world that you shouldn't earn money. And, you know, she was challenging that because she had that ingrained belief herself. And as much as she was challenging, I also kind of grew up with it a little bit too. This idea that sometimes, well, you know, I'm doing work that's helping people. I feel called to do this work. You know, I have a strong sense of vocation, a strong sense of service in what I do. I really believe my work is about, you know, being engaged in my spiritual practices. It's about coming into the world. And sometimes then there's this idea, well, oh, should you charge money for that? And, you know, I think the answer to that is yes, because, you know, the world we live in costs money. And also that my flourishing and my thriving is not separate from my service, that I actually think my best work comes from my flourishing and from my thriving. But there is that line there sometimes between money and spiritual work, which needs a little bit of traversing. So definitely I hear the belief I bump up against all the time in my own life and from others that people doing spiritual entrepreneurship shouldn't charge or should take a bow of poverty. And sometimes I'll hear Jesus use this as an example. And then I'll say and think, Jesus only did this for a couple of years. Yes. He didn't have a whole lifetime. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> he just had a few years to make it work. And he was very, very well funded, mostly by wealthy widows. Like the whole early Jesus movement was very well funded by people who had a lot of money. It took money to make it happen, even if Jesus himself didn't live extravagantly. And I think, you know, we sometimes have these ideas, especially in certain religious traditions that, you know, obviously about wealth and uh, it leading to corruption or to greed or to, you know, these imbalances of power. But, you know, the reality is money in and of itself is actually quite neutral. You know, wealth inequality is a terrible thing and we should actually be actively working to end that. But the level of wealth inequality that we're often kind of confronted with and that we have a real problem with is so much larger than what most of us as entrepreneurs are looking at. You know, we're not looking at billions of dollars here. We're not looking at trillions and this idea of a vast, almost an inconceivable amount of wealth of what you could actually do within your life. We're looking at, well, how much do we actually need to have a holiday, to retire, to send our kids to the school that we would like to send them to, to shop at the local markets? to go out to dinner, to have the house that we desire. You know, and that's a very different thing. How do we instead reframe it less about, you know, well, money is the root of all evil and we shouldn't therefore be a part of it. And actually, well, money is a tool that supports my flourishing and my flourishing is what helps me show up for the world. Yeah, absolutely. And what helps the people that we serve flourish as well. So, you know, in my circles, I, I have so many do-gooder friends and colleagues who are doing amazing work in the world, but in that shying away from money or shying away from abundance, they also kind of implicitly say that the people they're serving also don't deserve that. Yes. So even though they're working to eradicate poverty or to eradicate wealth inequality, they're unknowingly contributing to it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot invested in certain power imbalances in the world that keep us with these thoughts because they kind of just perpetuate the status quo, don't they? They don't actually allow us to rise up and challenge anything. They don't allow us to make real change in the world because all we're kind of doing is just we've internalized the mindset. We've internalized these belief structures. And so even if we think we're trying to change them, we're not because on the inside, this is still what we believe. This is still what we're trying to make true. So it's a challenging space that I do want to say money is not the only cause for change in the world. Sometimes there is too much of an emphasis that, you know, we could change the world if just we had the right money or something. And to me, that's not real change. That's kind of just a, it's not transformation. It might change the power dynamics. It might change who's in charge, but it doesn't transform the system. But 
we also do need money. You know, there's nothing wrong with money for to help people who are struggling in poverty, to help ourselves, to help nonviolent activist movements who, again, are very grassroots. These are not paid movements. There's nothing wrong with money to support us, to support our dreams, to support the world that we want to create. And so finding that line is important. Yes. And I can't wait to talk about some of that work because you're doing that amazing work. So why don't we go to that next? Absolutely. Sounds exciting. I've attended at least a few demonstrations and rallies in my time, sometimes as a supportive presence in my role as clergy. And so I'm not a stranger to advocacy, but I've never quite done it professionally, I think, in the way that you do. And I'm so intrigued by your work. Can you just tell us a little bit about your business, how it got started, and what you do? Mm. So I am an activist. And, you know, primarily, you know, my, my calling is to environmental and to climate spheres, because I think this is one of the most urgent crises that we face. But also, you know, as a climate activist, I think sometimes we are so focused on renewables or clean energy that we miss the underlying cause of the climate crisis, which really has its roots in capitalism, has its roots in colonialism, and has its roots in a spiritual disconnection from each other, from the earth, from our own hearts, from what is meaningful to us. And I think unless we start to look at that disconnection, then even if we manage to lower our carbon emissions, even if we go to net zero or all of these things that we talk about, then we'll recreate the problems that we have. You know, we won't have actually rediscovered our place in this world and on this earth. And that's really where my work lies. So my passion is in bridging the worlds of inner and outer change. So as an activist, you know, I know deeply we need urgent change in the world. We need it fast and we need it now. But also the change isn't just going to come from a policy. It's not just coming from a government. It comes from a change in our hearts, a change in our connection to ourselves, to each other, and from finding a deeper underlying foundation to what we're doing. So a really common example I kind of give is when I'm talking about this idea that we are the system is burnout. You know, there is such a huge burnout rate for change makers, for activists, for entrepreneurs, for anybody who's trying to make a difference in the world. You know, whether that's nursing, education, the burnout rate is huge. And a lot of the time that comes because we're still just kind of working in a way that tells us that we're not enough, that we need to do more. We equate our value with what we produce. So we try to extract more from ourselves. We expect our energy, our compassion, our attention to always be there on demand whenever we would like it. And all of this is just mimicking the world that we're in. You know, we expect any resource to be there when we would like it without time for renewal. We uh, think that we can extract from the earth without end. And unless we're starting to challenge well, how is this system internalized in me, then we're going to continue to recreate the patterns around us. I'm just in love with the whole concept of renewing inner and outer at the same time. And in your work, especially with attention to the environment, because I have legitimate anxiety about the climate crisis. I'm sure I'm not the only one. I know other people do too. I've actually seen support groups for those who experience anxiety around that. So how do you work with people around climate change and activism and environmentalism? Are you doing this one-on-one -on -one or in groups? What does that process look like? A bit of both. I work with people one-on-one -on -one as a coach and, you know, I also run an online school for change makers. So, you know, I work with people in group settings as well. And really, I do want to say, you know, when I use the term activist or change maker, Joanna Macy has a beautiful definition that I love, which is anybody who is active for a purpose bigger than personal gain, because we need so many different ways to remake the world, right? It's not just about 
you know, remaking our energy systems. We also need farmers reconsidering how they farm. We need accountants looking at their systems. We need musicians and artists and spiritual teachers. We need everybody really going to the place that they feel called. But to come back to what you were saying, this sense of, of eco-anxiety, I think is the term. And I experience it myself. It's a very natural response to the world that we're in. I think to assume otherwise would be we kind of tend to medicalize it almost like, well, you know, hey, like, you know, we just got to like get through it and just got to dive into action and everything else. And that's how we're going to change the world. And I think when we're looking at the world as it is, it makes sense that we're afraid. It makes sense that we feel grief. It makes sense that we feel anger. Like these are very healthy responses that I think show our connection to something larger than ourselves. And then how I work with that with people is really about honoring these emotions. It's about holding space for them and then looking at a deeper way of, okay, where does this anxiety call you? You know, what does this emotion want to say to you? Where does this anxiety tell me of what I love and what does love drive me to do next? And that's really the space which I work with people. That's just so lovely. I'm inspired by this kind of work and by this kind of coaching. You attribute your work to a number of Indigenous people. And we would love to hear a little bit about that and if this association has had an influence on your spirituality. Oh, I will say, so I credit my work that it was born on the stolen lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. So I live currently in Sydney, Australia, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, this was stolen land and the history of this land, which helped birth this work. And I do say this land because I think, you know, I have this connection to the natural world around me and a lot of my ideas and a lot of um, the spaces in which I work was really shaped, I think, by the ocean, by the trees, by the landscape that I'm a part of. And I want to acknowledge as well that traditional custodians all over the world, you know, hold the majority of the Earth's biosphere. You know, they have a different way of seeing the world, a different way of being part of it. And I think that's an important thing that we can relate to. I'm careful that, you know, my work is, is not about appropriating or, or taking Indigenous work, but it does align a lot with Indigenous thinkers. It does align a lot with this idea that there is a different way to be human. And I think many other cultures and traditionally Indigenous cultures have actually embodied that different way. The connection with the land that Lara embraces speaks to me so deeply but it's not one that I've always had. As a child, I remember pockets of time where I connected with a tree in our yard or a lake where we vacationed, but those were momentary rather than continuous. But I had a big aha moment when I was 19 and living in the Appalachian Mountains for a summer. It was beautiful, many of my peers had a deep connection to those mountains, and I just didn't get it. The first time I drove out of the mountains and I saw the valley, I breathed a deep sigh of relief I really need some open space around me to live, and I need to connect to the mountains from a little bit of a distance. Fast forward to my move to Ireland in the summer of 2021. I had been visiting here for 20 years on and off, but every visit felt more and more like I was coming home. My spouse and I, a few years before we moved, bought an apartment in Ireland, sight unseen, and I have to say, that is not my usual style. And it was in a town we had never been to, in a region of Ireland that we had never visited. Following our intuition in this regard turned out to be just the right call, because when we landed here for the first time a few years before we moved, I felt right at home. The land itself was calling to me, and I think I live in one of the most beautiful corners of the world. 
When I arrived back in Ireland after an extended visit to the United States very recently, every mile that I got closer and closer to the Connemara region where I currently live, I felt more and more at home. And when I finally entered the region, I breathed a sigh of relief that felt very much like the sigh I had when I saw that valley for the first time the summer when I was 19. Only this time, I get to stay in this valley, and the mountains are in the distance, and I can see them. The land where I live has its own energy, and the land where you live also has its own energy. When we can cultivate this relationship, including a love of the land, an appreciation of the land, listening to it, but also acknowledging trauma, pollution, colonization, and rehabilitation, that's when we can shift into this new way of being that I think Laura is talking about. We're not only inhabitants of the land, we're part of it. The book of Genesis, of course, has a very, very well-known creation story about the creation of humankinds, but I would like to break this down just a little bit. When God creates the first humans, God creates them from the Adama, which is the dust of the earth. The first human is actually not a male called Adam, but a human being called the Adam, made from the Adama. Right from the beginning, humans are called to be stewards of the very earth that they are created of. I feel very called to establish a relationship to the land and acknowledge that I am created from the land itself. Lars' connection to the land inspired me and we're both fellow lovers of travel. So I asked her if she had this same sense of love of the land when she travels and how that relates to her spirituality. Oh gosh, absolutely. Yes. You know, in some ways, some of the strongest experiences I've had of that actually haven't been in Australia. I've certainly had elements of that in the UK and Ireland, which again is kind of where my ancestral background is from. So in some ways it makes sense, but I've also had it in, you know, the jungle in South America and this feeling of, oh, I belong here. And even though I'm not from here, even though I'm from somewhere that is so incredibly far away, this idea that I belonged to the space that I was in and that it was holding me. And that's a very powerful thing. I think this is kind of what we're talking about. We're like rooted to land, that land is not all about our ownership of it. But I think in some sense it has its own vitality or its own presence. And how we relate to that, I think, will just be about us and where it feels like home to us, where it feels true to us. And every person will have different places for this. I think Ireland is a gorgeous country that holds so much history and story and its landscape that it's a very captivating place to be sometimes. It, it also offers us that. And I think you lived here for a while, didn't you? I did. I lived in Dublin for a short while. It was a great time of my life. I was just between the United Kingdom and Amsterdam. I spent a few years living in Europe and I very regretfully moved back to Australia at that time. It was the right decision. But there was also a lot of loss with that decision that I had to process too, of letting go of my life there and letting go of friends, but also starting a new chapter again. And obviously, I think now we were talking, I'm actually moving to Montreal in a couple of months. So it's kind of a transition stage, I think, that I'm in of this new chapter again arising out of that last one. What would you say has been your biggest challenge as an entrepreneur? So I often refer to myself as a recovering perfectionist. And I think Anybody who goes into entrepreneurship, you know, we are challenged with this idea that actually we need to put work out into the world before we're ready, before it's perfect. And that has definitely been a challenge. You know, this idea of one, I don't need to do everything alone. I can ask for help. 
too, that sometimes my work might not be ready in my head, but maybe it's ready enough and maybe it will find its next evolution after it's been released or after I've had this session or after I've run this course. And so it's this learning through doing, which is the best way to learn. And as a perfectionist is really challenging. (laughs) Terrifying, yes. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's terrifying. Nobody likes to put things out there with this risk of failure. So that's definitely been a big challenge for me. And I think the other is, well, in a sense, you know, my work is also built on my vocation. And, you know, it's built on very much things that I feel called to do. It does have a deeper sense of purpose to it. And sometimes, you know, our callings change. And, you know, we have our logical mind that says, oh, but no, but this makes sense. This is the sensible business decision. This is the right thing to do. And then there's another part of me that's very much like, yeah, but that is no longer yours. And it's time to move over here. And so navigating that space as well can also be a challenge at times. Do you sense that your spiritual journey or your spirituality has helped you with these challenges? I think so. My spiritual practices, you know, especially the ones of meditation and of going to somewhere new and these new locations to kind of open my mind again, are practices that I return to a lot. And they offer me that sense of groundedness, that sense of connection. You know, I think without that, I don't think I would be doing this work. You know, I would probably be in quite a different life. So absolutely, they help shape it and they help foster that sense of purpose of creativity and, you know, bringing that joy to what I do. So Laura, what do you think of when I say being in alignment? Does that mean anything to you? I think it means being in integrity. I think it's about our thoughts, our words, and our actions being in alignment. And when our thoughts, our words, and our actions are in integrity, when, when they are all synced up, when that's when we're really living our values, you know, that's when we're able to show up from a place of wholeness. You know, it's when we're able to actually embody real transformation because there's nothing that's still holding us back. You know, we're really there in its entirety. And I'm wondering if maybe you can tell us a bit more about the values you mentioned earlier that help fuel your own work, especially around eco-centeredness and wealth inequality and capitalism and how those all may come together for your own alignment and the work that you do. You know, I... I have a few foundations to the work that I do. You know, I think, first of all, understanding values are kind of verbs, not nouns, that I think the things that we live is really important. And, you know, I'm looking at the work that I do. It's really also coming from a place of believing that everything is relational and everything is connected. You know, when I was involved in a climate movement a few years ago, one of its central premises was this idea of nonviolence. And I love this beautiful concept because it's so huge. But this was a great example that it became one of my values and really understanding. Well, actually, perhaps every time I criticize myself, that is an act of violence. You know, every time I criticize my work or I say like, oh, God, it's not good enough. You know, that is an act of violence. And what would compassion look like there? It's not about you know, is this true? Is this not true? Like perhaps this work wasn't the best thing I've ever put out there. You know, perhaps I didn't do this thing brilliantly. You know, what would compassion do in this space? What would nonviolence do in this space? So this is really the way that I use values. It's less about what we do, but more are they in alignment in our thoughts, our words, and actions? And are we living them as living, breathing, dynamic principles and not just as, you know, a static noun, that this is what's important to me, this is what I value, but really having no body or soul to it. Is there a time in your business and your entrepreneurship when you felt out of alignment? 
Yes. You know, we all live in the world and sometimes I think we discover our values by, by going, of course, you know, so there's definitely been times that I felt out of alignment and it's in those moments that we actually kind of need to go, okay, well, what would be an alignment in my response here? You know, there was a situation recently where I mistakenly missed a credit in a blog post to somebody and that felt really out of alignment to me. It was like, Somebody like pointed it out and I was like, oh, that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be this person. So what is my alignment in response? You know, it is to apologize. It is to make up for that. And then it's to offer a response that's aligned in my integrity. So there's always going to be times that we feel out of alignment. And that's our guide. You know, it's our compass to kind of move around again. Sometimes we have to stray from the path and realize that to kind of find where the path diverged in the first place. What's your go-to practice for getting yourself back in alignment? It's to find stillness. Absolutely. Like that's the first thing. And stillness, you know, for me, that's meditation usually, but sometimes it's also dancing. Sometimes it's also just going for a walk. Sometimes it's immersing myself in nature. But I, for me, the stillness is where I'm able to recalibrate. You know, I think other people probably have different practices there, but that's definitely where I return to. I know that part of your work is centered around coaching other activists and change makers, especially in the school that you have. You talk about helping others detox from capitalism. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how you work with others to help them do that? So, you know, we are the system. A lot of the time we are trying to change the world around us without actually acknowledging that we still are perpetuating this in some way, that we too are showing up in this way. and. So look, capitalism is my example. That's a really good one. Now, most of us kind of don't always question capitalism, but as a climate activist, most of us bring it back to, it is one of the root causes of the climate crisis. It believes in infinite growth on a finite planet. It has this artificial production of scarcity embedded into it. And it offers really no value to to complex living systems like the natural world, unless we're able to extract something from them or use them in some way. And so we also need to look at the ways that we have internalized that. What are the ways that we equate our value with what we produce? What are the ways that we feel that we need to just work harder and just keep going and just do a little bit more? You know, where do we equate growth with success? Because the two are not actually synonymous. You know, I think um, that was an important lesson I learned in Bhutan, that we can really redefine what success means to us and create a more holistic metric of of our well-being. And, you know, we can also then look at that sense of time scarcity that so many of us experience, especially entrepreneurs, you know, that feeling that there's just never enough time. These are all internalizations of capitalism. So how do we internalize the system? And then how do we start to get free? You know, how do I start to then challenge those senses of scarcity within myself, that scarcity that I'm not good enough, that I'm not enough, that sense of time scarcity, what would be different? You know, if I weren't to have that, how do I offer myself abundance? How do I offer myself compassion? How can I remind myself that I am safe? How do I redefine for myself what success is? You know, how do I look at my relationships perhaps as more important than my outcomes? These are ways that we get free. I was enthralled with Laura's ideas. As someone who admittedly detested my economics course in college, but embraced a theology of liberation and wholeness as a minister and a scholar, I have struggled with the idea of capitalism for a long time. We all need enough abundance, wholeness, and plenty for everyone, and I believe wholeheartedly that that is possible. 
When Laura talked about capitalism thriving in scarcity, that struck me as profoundly true. In fact, many people, religious, spiritual or not, focus so much on scarcity that they promote capitalism even when they critique it. Instead, Laura is suggesting that there is enough for everyone, but we don't need to fill the world endlessly with waste or junk. And this excites me since I try to reuse, recycle and embrace minimalism without sacrificing well-being or comfort. Again, I know it's all possible. Still, what is the right way to call this way of being? I had no idea. The beauty of going beyond capitalism is really that it hasn't been born yet. You know, so often when we say we're like anti-capitalism, well, oh, you you mustn't like business or you mustn't like money, but they're different things. They're not the same thing as capitalism. So often when we say anti-capitalism, people think of China or the Soviet Union. And again, that's not really, you know, the vibe that we're going for here, but we are looking to create something new. And what I think we have an incredible power to do at this time, especially as entrepreneurs, is to reimagine our participation in toxic systems. We can reimagine our values and how we want to embed them in what we do in our marketing, sales, strategy, operations, every section. And this does mean a little bit of reflection. It means understanding, well, how am I perpetuating scarcity in my marketing, for example? You know, it's a really common one. This sense that we tell people, you need to like buy now or you're just going to like miss out. And that's not a place I want to sell from. That's not in alignment with my values. It's definitely perpetuating that scarcity tenant of capitalism. It's really creating a fear response. And instead, what would it look like to sell and market at the speed of trust, at the speed of relationship? You know, how can I instead look at anti-oppressive principles? Because let's be real, capitalism has not only perpetuated like injustice historically in the forms of like slavery and classism, but in the modern day with exploitation, you know, with cheap factories overseas and with war and this infinite war machine that we have. So how do we start to look at, well, what would an anti-oppressive response to this be? How do I start to share power and not just wield it as domination? And these are the spaces that we get to work at as entrepreneurs. And as we do this, we come together in creating a new world. We come together in creating the world beyond capitalism, whatever that will be and whatever that is called. But I think these are kind of the seedlings or the grassroots that we get to be that we get to be looking after at this time. That's just wonderful. That's really a helpful framework for me. I know it's going to be a really helpful framework for others as well. And even going back to the really simple, you know, tip on abundance about what we wear, I commented bonus points if what you're wearing is ethically sourced, if it's fair trade. So I could be wearing, you know, a $20 t-shirt that I know is coming from non-exploited hands. And I just feel so good when I'm wearing it. I'm wondering if that fits into the framework that you're talking about. Absolutely. You know, and I think part of this is this idea that we also need to move from what is sustainable to what is regenerative as in the world, as business owners. You know, we often focus on like sustainability as a sense of like do less harm, but really sustainability is about kind of maintaining the status quo, right? It's about, well, I'm not going to deplete it further. And when we're looking at this idea of regeneration, well, it's about how do I infuse life-giving principles into what I do? How do I feel good about my decisions? How do I increase my impact on the world? If we're buying something that's ethical and fair trade, well, I know where my money is going. You know, I am supporting a more just and regenerative world. I am feeling good about my decisions. I am buying from a business that is increasing its handprint on the world, that is that is offering it something. And so that's a, I think it's a very cool place to be that 
I can feel good simply by making these decisions. And that goodness that I'm feeling can then generate itself into another expression that I can offer people. That's wonderful. And in the name of sustainability versus regeneration, most of us are going to have phones and smartphones. And one little thing I do is I almost always buy mine used just to keep new ones from being made, one fewer new one being made out there in the world. So it's definitely not participating in regeneration, but my husband looks at it and I'll get, I'll get a new phone that has a crack in it and he doesn't understand it. But for me, that's completely abundant. Yes. No, no, I love it. You know, I'm not putting like new chemicals out there. I'm I'm recycling old chemicals. Exactly. Although I should say I'm sitting here with like an iPhone 11 next to me that, you know, I did buy new. But this is the thing. We're all part of this world, right? It's, It's impossible to opt out completely. So really it's about those conscious choices where we can make them. Like you're saying with your phone, like you're saying with your shirt, how can I start to do good? What would it look like as well in my business to do good? You know, what are the impacts of my industry's peers or ancestors on the earth. How am I going to be a part of repair there? It's not about being perfect, but it is about finding those decisions that are meaningful to us. This is all so wonderful. Before we wrap up, Laura, do you have any advice or wisdom you'd like to share with the listeners? I think probably two things. You know, one, you know, as an anti-capitalist, I always like to remind people that we don't serve the world by playing broke or small. It's not that we need to struggle to be of service. I really don't believe that. I think we all deserve to live flourishing, thriving lives. And that includes those of us who are working to help others, whatever flourishing can mean for us. And then two, it's also to remind people that, you know, we are the system and whatever it is that we're looking to change in the world in some way probably also exists in us. And so our work in changing that in the world and in transforming it is also going to the root of it. How does it exist in our thoughts, our words, our actions? It might look a little bit different, but the essence might still be there. And then from that place, can we start to make real embodied transformation? And from that, we have the possibility of creating change in the world. Otherwise, sometimes we're just recreating it in a different way. So I think those would be my last pieces of wisdom. You know, what is a flourishing life for you? You deserve that. Seek that. And then from your flourishing, looking to uproot as well these parts of the world that we want to change from within our psyches, our hearts, our minds, our bodies. This is all so amazing, Laura. Thank you so much for being here. What is the best way for people to find you? They can find me on my website, laurahartley.com, L-A-U-R-A, and then Hartley, H-A-R-T-L-E-Y.com. Or I'm also on Instagram at laura.h.hartley, as well as LinkedIn and Facebook, if those are your spaces. I'm Katie Valentine, and you've been listening to Soul Savvy Business. Soul Savvy Business is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes shows such as Just Between Coaches and Once Upon a Business. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. I wrote this episode with Melissa Deal and Cynthia. Melissa assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was by Post Office Sound. To make sure you don't miss any great episodes coming up on Soul Savvy Business, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please give us a starred review. It is the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thanks, and I will see you next time.